Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today I'm speaking with Benjamin Callahan, who is an assistant professor at North Carolina State University, and we'll be talking about metagenomics and its different aspects. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Roman. Happy to be here. Ben, remind us what metagenomics is and uh, what goals may a typical metagenomics study pursue? Uh well, you, you've stumbled into a contentious area of terminology right from the beginning. I think that we're going to be talking about metagenomics more broadly defined, which is any kind of community sequencing of, of genomes. And so that includes both um, amplicon sequencing of marker genes, so what people call 16S sequencing, um, as well as shotgun metagenomics, where just the entire DNA content of a sample is sequenced. Um, in, in, in the field, there is argument that people should not use the term metagenomics to refer to marker gene sequencing, but it's a convenient term sometimes. It gets used that way sometimes to just describe sequencing of mixed community samples. So basically, you sequence something, right? Typically, you sequence uh, bacteria, but I guess not necessarily. It could be other microorganisms. And, and so these uh, organisms, they come from some environment, right? And uh, so what kind of uh, biological question can a metagenomic study address? Yeah. So, so, I mean, one term that I think is alternative term that I think is useful is community sequencing. And so that's typically what metagenomics is used for. It's to sequence a community where there's more than just a you know single organism there. And so it's most commonly used for microbes because we lack other ways to conveniently assay those communities, but it can be used for anything. Um, so there, are the, the, the basic observation, the most common observation that you can make is to do censuses of communities uh, via this community sequencing or metagenomics approach. And so what can you do with a census of community? So anything you can do with a census of community, any questions you can start to answer with that type of data, then you can go after with a metagenomics approach. And what, what is the census? This is basically a list of, uh, of like the species that you can find there. Maybe there are abundances. Yeah. So, so that would be the idea. It would be similar to a census of, you know, people in the United States. You know, how many people, what, what are the states in which people live and how many are in each? Um, you know, what are the different income distributions? So what are the different microbial species in this community? And what are their relative abundances to each other? So you mentioned the distinction between the amplicon sequences versus uh, shotgun sequencing, and I think we'll be mostly talking about amplicon sequencing. And in the context of amplicon sequencing, we have this notion of an OTU, or Operational Taxonomic Unit. So why does it arise, and, and what is it? Yeah, so maybe a little bit of background on amplicon sequencing. So typically, the, the idea behind the most common use of amplicon sequencing is that Sequencing all the DNA is kind of costly from a mixed community, um, and it, I may get a lot of DNA in my sequencing that I don't actually care about. So as an alternative, amplicon sequencing, I pick a specific gene that, that I choose uh, wisely that is like a barcode for what that bacteria is. And then I amplify up just that gene for my community from all the bacteria in it, and then I sequence that gene. So that's kind of the, the marker gene sequencing approach, and the, and the most common gene being the 16S rRNA gene. 
maybe you can talk about why why exactly uh, 16s, and I, I think it's like a specific part of 16 of the 16s gene. So why is that particular gene or, or part of the gene so popular for this purpose? Yeah, so that gene is so popular because it's completely universal. So all bacteria have it. Um, and it has this particular structure where you have these extremely conserved segments um, in, intercalated with more variable like loop regions in the RNA structure. And so that allows you to uh, create sequencing libraries where you have primers that are based on the really conserved segments. But in between those primers are variable regions that give you the resolution to distinguish you know, one genus from another, for example. And so it's that that those combination of properties that have made this uh, sort of the gene of choice for assaying uh, bacterial communities. And, and now I've forgotten what the original question was, though. <laughs> um, so you were explaining what uh, OTUs are. Oh, yeah. Okay. So now we're going to do this 16S uh, sequencing experiment. And at the end of that, we get this um, big stack of reads from this single barcode locus from all these bacteria. Now, in this big stack of reads, um, you know, there's a lot of errors, perhaps, in it. There's, there's a lot of variation that maybe we don't care about. And there are a lot of unique sequences. And so we want some way to simplify the data and to generate sort of taxonomic units, even though we might not have a name taxonomy for many of these things. We want something that approximates our concept of a genus. And so OTUs are... A pretty simple idea, really. We're just going to cluster the data at some percent identity threshold, and that's going to do two things for us. It's going to give us something that's kind of like a family or a genus or a species, um, and it's going to group errors together with the real sequences from which they came. So, so that's kind of the the reason that OTUs become became this dominant way to process uh, amplicon sequencing data. Right. So, so OTUs are sort of a stand-in for for these real taxonomic units like like species and, and genus and phylum. But uh, I'm also curious, how do taxonomies work for bacteria? Because the, the normal way we uh, define, for example, the, the, the notion of the species for, uh, for like sexual organisms, right? It doesn't apply to bacteria. So how do people come, come up with these uh, classifications to like species and, and phyla, et cetera? Um, okay. So, so bacterial systematics is not my area and it is a difficult one. So th there's two questions here. So what is the best way to define, for example, a bacterial species? You know, we don't have this biological species concept where um, you know, in, in sexual species, if they can't mate and produce viable offspring, then they're different species. That doesn't work to define species in bacteria. Um, so the first question, the first answer is, how have species been defined? And a lot of that is using certain proxies, like DNA-DNA uh, hybridization thresholds, but it also has a lot of historical accident to it. And so if you go into one genus of bacteria, that's been of interest to a lot of microbiologists over the years, it will have a lot of named species. And if you go into another genus of bacteria that has not been of interest to a lot of bio, uh, microbiologists, it won't. It might have one named species. And that doesn't really reflect the biology of those uh, 
bacterial genera, it reflects the historical process of creating a named taxonomy. And so that's one of the challenges um, that OTUs hope to address a little bit in just setting an objective percent identity threshold for creating taxonomic units, then you're less beholden to the you know whims of history and how we have chosen to look at the bacterial world. Yeah, so you, you can't blame OTUs for being arbitrary because the thing they're approximating are themselves arbitrary, right? So that um, correct. They're, that's only it, fair. They're, they're, OTUs are not more arbitrary than the named species, no. <laughs> right. Um, but still, there are some issues with uh, with OTUs, and you've published a few papers uh, discussing those. So, what what are the what are your main objections to using OTUs? So, so the biggest problem, in my opinion, is that going back to this uh, sort of canonical idea of how we create OTUs. So, we have this big stack of reads from our from our different from our community, and we're going to set some percent identity threshold and cluster them together at that threshold. And at the end of that, we're going to get OTUs 1 through 100. And that's then what our census is based on after that. And so as we move forward in our study, maybe we discover something. We discover that OTU 35 is very predictive of periodontal disease. So nice. OK, this becomes now a positive finding. Um, in theory, this seems like it would be useful. We publish it. But now I want to go back and I want to try and diagnose periodontal disease by repeating this experiment, by doing amplicon sequencing in, with someone's saliva sample, creating OTUs, and then predicting whether they, they have periodontal disease. Well, when I create those OTUs with that new data set, I create different OTUs. And so every time, so OTUs are a property of the data set. They are not consistent. And so all of my results that are based on OTUs are really only completely valid within my data set and can't be directly compared to other data sets or other studies, or and the results can't be directly utilized in future studies as well. So to me, that's the biggest problem with sort of the, the standard OTU approach is this inability to directly replicate or falsify OTU-based findings and this inability to build upon and translate OTU-based findings because you don't get the same OTUs the next time. And maybe now is a good time to discuss the various strategies to uh, to make OTUs. Um, so in particular, there is there are de novo OTUs where you just pick all the sequences and cluster them, but there is also something called an open reference, um, I guess, uh, OTU building. Uh, so, so maybe you could explain uh, what that is and whether you, you could use an open reference, whether you could use this published OTUs, uh, including OTU 35, uh, to, to do the next OTU assignment. Right. So um, in my example there, I'm really talking about de novo OTUs, where we just take our data and we cluster it at some percent identity threshold. So the other type of OTU um, is called a closed reference OTU. And there, you're really just mapping against a reference database. And so if you map against a reference database, you can then go into another study and map against that same reference database and have results that are comparable between your two studies. So, so closed reference OTUs don't have this problem 
of not being comparable across studies. Um, but they, they do have problems in that they're reliant on that reference database. So if the reference database changes, then things aren't comparable again. Um, if the reference database is incomplete, you don't capture any of the things not uh, present in your reference database. And it, again, runs into some of the same problems with name taxonomy in that the uh, content of the reference database tends to reflect some of these historical choices that we've made about what uh, clades of bacteria we want to investigate and what, what ones we don't. Right. So, so that's the closed reference and the open reference is a sort of hybrid. Yeah. So open reference is a hybrid. Um, and really, it's you do de novo OTUs and then you do close. Sorry, you do you do mapping against the reference database or closed reference OTUs, and then whatever didn't map, you construct open uh, uh, de novo OTUs out of. Right. And uh, so, what's the problem? Like, why why don't people just have this big database where they um, put all their new OTUs and so once a new OTU like in your example OTU 35 is discovered is deposited into this global OTU database so every next study builds upon the already discovered OTUs and may discover some new OTUs and so you know everything goes well and uh, the reference well it sort of changes but um, in a in one direction, I guess, right? So there are no bifurcations, hopefully. So it doesn't work that way with de novo OTUs. So de novo OTUs are not a sequence that you can deposit in a reference database. They are some cluster, right. some cloud of sequences. And so that's not so easy to put into a reference database. And then what you know, you put your, your OTU 35 in, and then later someone puts their OTU 86 in. And those two you know, clouds of sequences, they overlap with each other. Yeah, and now what do you do? Um, so, so that that's a nice uh, idea, and it 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 would be great if it worked that way, but it doesn't actually work that way with these uh, de novo OTU objects. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a good point. Um, and so, what is uh, the solution that you advocate? So the solution is to not create these OTUs or, or these clusters of sequences is to work at the level of exact sequences directly. Right. So in, instead of depositing a, a cloud of, of, of sequences and identifying them all together, we deposit them separately. Well, you, you do your analysis at that level as well. So I, I determine that you know exact sequence 10 is related to predicting periodontal disease. But exact sequence 10 can be very precisely defined. It's this DNA sequence. It represents like this physical object that exists outside of my study. And so that can be deposited into a reference database. So that can be compared directly to the results from another study. That can be used as a biomarker in subsequent work where I'm trying to predict periodontal disease in real patients. Right. And there are a couple of potential issues with, with this and, and the reasons why people invented OTUs in the first place, one of which, how do you know the exact sequence? Or how, how do you make sure that the sequence you have really corresponds to the physical object? It doesn't have any, for example, sequencing errors. And the other one is... Uh, 
is isn't this too fine grained? And uh, as you mentioned, these are like variable. Uh, we we are sequencing. We are relying on the variable parts of the 16S gene. And so, what if we get some noise there that doesn't represent anything uh, biological? So, how, how do you tackle those two issues? Right. So the 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 first issue was the important hurdle that had to be overcome to make this happen, and that was uh, developing methods that could, you know, accurately discern true biological sequences um, from errors, and to discriminate that even when there's just a single nucleotide difference. Um, between two true biological sequences. You want to be able to tell those apart. Um, but you have to do that without just pretending that all the errors in your data are also true. And so that's been kind of uh, this bioinformatics and computational methodological development that's happened over the past five years, where now there are good methods to do that. And, and so you can uh, you can do that. It, it's available in sort of widely used software. Um, it's you know, those methods are widely used. They've been validated by independent groups. Um, and, and so that was a, a core thing that had to happen. Because previous to that, while there were uh, denoising methods, they were insufficient. And so people felt you had to rely on this OTU clustering as a next level of uh, knocking down your errors. Um, on, on the other point, so wouldn't exact sequences be too high resolution? Um, you know, and, and at some level, let's say we're sequencing entire genomes on a single read, right? Maybe at that point, getting the exact sequence is too high resolution, and I'm going to want to coarse grain my data at some level. But for the most common application of doing 16S sequencing with, with Illumina, we're sequencing maybe 250 or 300 nucleotides of the 16S gene. And the standard approach was to create these OTUs um, clustered at a 97% identity threshold. So 3% of difference uh, was counted as no difference for the OTU's purpose. And, th and that's what people found to roughly correspond to the species level, right? So that for a long time, people said that corresponded to the species level. It does not. Um, and it doesn't correspond very precisely to any named taxonomic level, but it's probably the closest to the genus level, uh, would be that level of variation in, in a short read 16S sequencing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so actually, resolving those to single nucleotide resolution is probably the closest threshold there is to the species level. So, so that's that's the the level of resolution that most closely resembles the uh, average difference between named species and bacteria. And so, it's higher resolution, but it's not like extremely high resolution. It's not something where you're going to have a mutation that pops up in this particular bog and gives you a new 16S sequence variant. Um, these uh, even single nucleotide changes are on average representative representative of the kind of evolutionary divergence that would be two different bacterial species. So you're saying that the, the second issue is really a non-issue once you really look into it, but the, the first one had to be overcome. And uh, I guess you were part of the movement uh, of the effort to overcome it. And uh, you uh, developed the software uh, data and data too. Um, can you talk about like the the methods that that make this possible to to resolve to basically remove errors from the sequenced applicants? Sure. Yeah. So our method 
and, and sort of most of the other methods that do this now are really based around modeling the error process. So modeling the process in which errors are, are introduced by uh, PCR and sequencing into the reads that you get. And so in, in our algorithm and software, there is a specific quantitative model of the error process, where at each nucleotide position, there is some probability that between the real sequence and what you get out at the end, the read, that the nucleotide of that position changed from what it was in the real sequence to some other nucleotide. And so then uh, the nucleotides are all treated independently, and so you get a total probability that given that I have read R, the true sequence was sequence S. And so with that error model, um, we're able to construct this uh, you know, sort of pseudo p-value that uh, this sequence that we saw in the data repeatedly, um, we saw it too many times to be explained by errors. Um, and one of the things to remember about errors is that there are lots of errors, but you don't tend to get the same error over and over and over and over you tend to get lots of different errors. So if I see the same sequence over and over and over, um, at some point, I've just seen it too many times for it to be consistent with the error process. That's another biological sequence. And so we formalize that idea um, and then use that as our criteria for this is a real sequence, this is not. This, I think, requires maybe deeper sequencing than uh, when using OTUs because if you have um, some, let's say, rare species, or not necessarily even rare species, but if you have um, species that are not covered well because of the shallower sequencing, then it's hard to distinguish errors from genuine sequences because even genuine sequences are not you know they, they do not occur that often to overwhelm the the erroneous sequences if, if that makes sense uh so yes and no so in practice given the libraries that people construct you don't need deeper sequencing to use these methods um in some limit that's true so if you have say 50 sequences per sample then you might not get repeated observations of any of your species. And then maybe this sort of method won't work as well. Yeah. Um, but, but in practice, you know, typically people are generating thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of reads now. And, and all of those read depths are completely sufficient to use um, an exact sequence method with. So basically you control for, um, for like false positive rates. So you don't, uh, claim that uh, something is there when it's not, but it, it is possible that uh, a very rare sequence will be subsumed by your exact variant, but that's not no worse than, than we already have in OTUs. So this is, in, in this sense, an improvement over OTUs because, yes, the exact sequence can... Uh, can also represent some rare variants of, the, of that sequence, but at least the exact sequence itself is there as well. Yeah, I mean, there, there's sort of a, um, there's somewhat of a debate about how to deal with really rare sequence variants, things that might appear just once in your data, what people refer to as singletons. And it's been a little bit conflated with the OTU versus 
uh, exact sequence variant debate because most of the exact sequence methods have have chosen to typically not identify singletons as real things because there's such a high rate of errors that are singletons. But that's actually a little bit of a separate issue. You 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 can absolutely construct. You can even use our method to identify singletons, things present in just one read, as real. Um, you know, by setting an option or two. Uh, so it's a little bit of a, of a separate issue from the dichotomy between choosing to do OTUs or doing exact sequences. So in, in your method, so you say you have a statistical model of the errors in, in PCR and sequencing. Um, what are you comparing again? So you have only the read sequence, right? And uh, you hypothesize that it comes from some real sequence. Um, but uh, you don't know that real sequence, right? So you have, like in theory, you should have enumerated all the possible sequences that this particular read may come from and sort of marginalized over them. Um, but that's, of course, in infeasible. So in reality, I guess you're comparing against other sequences from from the sequencing from the sequenced data set yes yeah, so, so we took a particular approach to uh learning the parameters of our error model and we do it from the data you give it and you don't have to know the ground truth and so the approach we took was to ask for consistency between the prediction of our algorithm of the composition of the community and the error rates that are then implied by that composition and so the way that it works is it's a little bit like an EM algorithm in that you go back and forth. So first, we take a very bad guess at what the error rates are. We just guess that they're really high. And then given those error rates, we then predict the composition of the community. Now with that composition of the community, we can now estimate what the error rates are. We have all these reads. These are the real sequences they came from. What would the error rates be? Now we're going to learn a new set of error rates that were lower than they were before. Okay, the error rate's changed. Now we're going to go and predict the composition of the community again. And we're going to repeat this back and forth process until we get consistency. And that is, um, we're getting a consistent set, a consistent community composition and set of error rates, and nothing changes as you go back and forth between those steps. And so that's our approach to do unsupervised learning of the error rates, um, because it's, it's difficult to ask people to have uh, ground truths in all of their studies. And there's also this issue that error rates actually vary quite a bit between studies because people do different PCR protocols, library preparation protocols, uh, uh, sequencing instruments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting because I, I sort of assume that these error rates are more or less um, constant. So that's uh, a bit unexpected that they vary so much. Uh, but... So I, I was actually asking about something different. So you, you explained how you estimate the parameters of your model, but once you have this model and you need to compute the p-value of uh, this sequence coming from a different sequence, right? So basically what you have is a probability of um, observing a sequence, whereas uh, observing a read, whereas the true sequence is different but you don't yeah. know the true sequence. And so how do you compute this probability of, of the transition if you don't know where you transitioned from? I see. Um, 
So the, the concept is the following, that things that are very abundant are likely to be true sequences. And so the, the algorithm that we um, use is we start by postulating that there is one true sequence in the data set, the most abundant one. And from that, we start calculating the p-values that everything else we see. This read that we saw the same, you saw 50 reads of the same sequence. What's the probability that that could be explained by errors from this one true sequence? You know, and, and then we hit on there's there's something in the data that cannot be explained by the error process, and now that gets separated out into a second partition, and it gets to recruit reads that the reads that are closest to it, and then we do that process again. Now that we have reads in these two partitions, we're going to ask how are each explained by that one presumed true sequence, um, and we're going to find the ones that can't be explained by errors from it, and they're going to create their own partitions. And at the end of that um, algorithmic process, it, it terminates at which at a, at a point at which all of the data can be explained sufficiently well by the error model and the uh, inferred true sequences. It terminates, and that is then the our inference of the true sample composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Okay, are there any scenarios where you would actually yourself use or advocate the use of OTUs over exact sequence variance, or, or, or do you think uh, it's sort of uniformly and universally better? So as a first step in your analysis, I would say that you would almost always want to start with exact sequences. Um, to start with OTUs at the first step is to just throw away resolution right off the bat, and, and to throw away this ability to directly compare between studies right off the bat. Um, it seems like an unforced error. Now, that said, one of the things about microbes is that the phylogenetic levels at which functions of interest vary are very different. So there are some you know, important functions, like maybe uh, heat resistance, that might vary at one level, whereas another thing, like, like salinity resistance or salinity tolerance might vary at a different phylogenetic level. Maybe that varies at the order level and and you know, heat resistance varies at the genus level. And so sometimes it's useful to analyze your data at the level at which the function of interest varies. And so although typically, you know, I'm going to start my analysis with exact sequences and doing, uh, and doing my analysis there, I'm also going to consider doing analyses at higher levels as well. Now, I typically use name taxonomy for those higher levels because I really value this ability to directly compare between studies and to be able to reuse my results in future work. But OTUs are an alternative to that. Um, and so I might choose to start at the exact sequence level, but maybe I'm working in a, a clade of bacteria that has really poor name taxonomy. And so then maybe I am going to cluster at 97% and 94% and 91%, et cetera, to get uh, you know, approximations of name taxonomic levels at, at that level of resolution. So that's where there's still a, a use for OTUs, in, in my opinion. And uh, on the topic of uh, different phenotypes varying at different taxonomic or phylogenetic levels, um, I think you had a commentary uh, in Embio uh, where you discussed this um, particular uh, microbe, Curtibacterium, right? Um, so do you want to discuss like the main uh, takeaways from uh, from the commentary 
so, so the main takeaways really were this, uh, and they're not really even our ideas so much. This is a commentary on another article. In particular, the um, Martinis have worked a lot on this research program about the different phylogenetic scales at which important bacterial traits vary. Um, and the point that we were kind of trying to stress in our commentary was that as these molecular methods have sort of taken over the study of microbial ecology, we have to keep in mind that the molecular method and analysis we choose sets a phylogenetic scale at which we're doing our analysis. And we have to remember that we have to be cognizant of the fact that that may or may not be the right phylogenetic scale that we need to be looking at for our scientific question. So to go back to that example of you know salinity tolerance versus heat tolerance, if I was doing some very coarse-grained, let's say I'm just mapping at the family level, and that's what I'm doing my analysis at, at the family level. Um, but the function of interest, I'm, I'm looking at uh, bacterial response to um, high heat, and that varies at the genus level. So I'm not making the right choice in my molecular methods then, because I need resolution at the genus level or below if I'm going to capture the uh, the heat tolerance phenotype that I care about. Oh, actually, I wanted to say one other thing on OTUs and exact sequences, or, or we call them ASVs. Uh, and, and I get this question a lot, you know, ever since we've written that paper, like, you know, should we ever be using OTUs or why isn't everyone using exact sequences or something like that? Or is it okay that I'm using OTUs? That's, that's one I get. And it is okay. So, so one of the things that I've been trying to express lately is that, you know, I think that in most cases, and I think there are good reasons to say this, that working at the exact sequence or ASV level is preferable. And it has these useful properties that will probably contribute to your science in the long run. And so that's why we say that it's better. But there's a difference between something being better and, and, and than another option and something being right and wrong. So because this sort of new technology has come along and allowed us to work at this more resolved level that has these nice cross-study comparability properties, it doesn't make OTUs wrong, right? It doesn't make science based on OTUs wrong. Uh, and, and that's something to keep in mind as well. Like a, a lot of times when people get into these, probably any kind of argument, but, but methodological arguments, uh, this issue of better or worse in certain ways gets conflated with, well, this is right and this is wrong. And, and I just want to stress that that's not really the case here. OTUs aren't wrong. I just think that you're better off working at the exact sequence or ASV level, at least to start. Right. So they aren't wrong. Like OTUs themselves, or as you say, the science isn't necessarily wrong, especially the like already published science. But for new research, if you have a method that's universally better than the previous one, that it, it is wrong to use that method, right? If if there is if there are no downsides to using a better method, it's not that your conclusions will necessarily be wrong, but you're doing the wrong thing, but not by not using the best tool available to you. I would, I mean, my recommendation would be that you probably want to use exact sequences, especially if you're starting a new project, yeah. Um, are you wrong if you're using OTUs? So there are many studies that will get the same conclusions using either method. And so if you know that what you care about is at the phylum level, for example, it doesn't really matter if you analyze your data starting at OTUs or ASVs. 
you mentioned all, all these advantages to um, to ASVs, to amplicon sequence variants, and uh, I think we covered maybe a couple of them. So, so the main one is that uh, they should be more reproducible and they are comparable across uh, studies. We also had a paper in uh, ISMIJ where you listed quite a few sort of points of comparison uh, between uh, ASVs and OTUs. So you want to maybe go through some of those and, and discuss some other sort of benefits that you can draw from uh, ASVs? So I think ASVs have a couple of nice properties. So they are not tied to a reference database. So they will capture all of the variation in your study. And they are also reproducible in future studies and comparable between studies. So in addition to that, they also are at a higher resolution than OTU methods. And while that won't matter for some studies, it will allow you to see biology that you would not have otherwise seen in some studies as well. So in the Curtibacteria study, I think uh, you made a point where like the 97% OTU would have... Um joined some species that actually differ phenotypically in some important ways, right? So in that case, going to this finer resolution would have helped um, if, if you were using just applicants to study these communities. Um, but also that's not a panacea because, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it may also happen that even at the ASV level, but if you only are considering uh, the 16S gene, it may still happen that uh, your exact sequence also contains some phenotypic diversity. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, the same exact sequence in a short 16S region can still encompass significant amounts of phenotypic variability. I mean, a classic example would be you know, bacteria that pick up a antibiotic resistance plasmid, you're going to see no difference from your short read 16S exact sequences, but that might be the critical uh, phenotypic difference that you care about in some clinical case. Okay, so, so that's a bit of an extreme, right, case where uh, bacteria can, can get these plasmids sort of independently of their chromosome. But... Um, are, are there also cases like that where it's the, the the chromosome itself that can like vary in some um, parts of it more than it varies in in the 16s part? I guess there must be, right? Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, the bacteria have typically this structure where they have a core genome, which is reasonably conserved, and at least its content is very conserved, and then this flexible genome, which can different gene cassettes or genes or operons can pop in and out with a much higher frequency. And so almost anything in that flexible genome can vary on scales higher than what can be captured by a short segment of the 16S gene. And that's just due to the nature of how uh, the flexible genome evolves, which is a, a lot through sort of horizontal gene transfer. And so one example of that that I think we touch on in that mBio commentary was uh, iron scavenging phenotypes. And this is one of these kind of phenotypes that relates to um, cheater and public good dynamics. So do I create this extracellular product that chelates iron that I then allows me to capture it later? 
So alternatively, I can evolve to be a cheater. I don't create that extracellular product. I just capture the chelated iron that others have created for me. Um, so, so that is happening on the chromosome, but that evolution tends to happen at a very high rate. And it typically would not be captured by any nucleotide difference on the 16S gene. Yeah, so, so that brings me to the question, why are people then using applicant sequencing at all? Like, given that uh, bacteria can evolve so rapidly and you may miss very important traits by uh, looking only at this small part of their genome, um, isn't, isn't that a strong argument against... Uh, using uh, amplicon sequencing at all? Well, so these are examples where it's not going to work, right? You're not going to capture that phenotypic variation of interest. But there are many examples where it will work, where the phenotypic variation happens at higher phylogenetic levels, so at the species level or higher, and that you will capture it by this method. But can, can you know that in advance, right? That, that's the real question. Can you predict whether uh, the particular trait you're interested in will be captured by uh, 16S sequencing? So th that will require some domain knowledge. For some traits, sure. You know, we, we kind of know that it will. So if I want to know about uh, lactic acid production, for example, then 16S profiling will tell me about that pretty, pretty well. If I don't know what the trait is that I'm looking at, then maybe I won't know that or not. So there's a lot of important information that these sort of marker gene approaches do capture. Now, are they perfect? Of course not. Um, can you get more information by using other technologies? Yes. But the reason that they have been so widely used and remain widely used and will remain widely used is because they are robust, cheap, and, and very high throughput. So like any, you know, in any real situation, we're constrained by like the practicality of taking measurements, right? So I could get more information by doing a measurement that might cost 10 times as much money. But if I don't, if, if, if money is a constraint of what I'm doing, then I have to make a decision about which type of measurement to make. And so these amplicon sequencing approaches um, work in like all kinds of samples because you amplify up just the DNA from the bacteria you're interested in. And so that's very powerful when you're working in samples that might have a lot of human DNA in them, for example. Like if I'm working in the vaginal microbiome, some of those samples have 99% human DNA. So if I just sequence all the DNA, I have to sequence a lot of it to get enough bacterial DNA for my purposes. Whereas if I do amplicon sequencing, I just get that bacterial fraction. And, and so there's this push-pull. So uh, amplicon sequencing is limited in some important ways. And it may not be the right answer for some, it isn't the right answer for some scientific questions. Uh, but for other scientific questions, it can be the right answer. And it's definitely the cheapest and most robust method to assay microbial communities that's out there. And so just to close this topic of um, ASVs and maybe get to, to some other stuff as well, um, what is the current adoption of the... ASVs, uh, are, like in, in the researcher community, have they replaced OTUs? Can you, so for example, I know uh, a lot of people use pipelines like Chime or uh, Mother, and uh, can you use ASVs 
in those pipelines? Is, is that sort of well integrated? And uh, of the recent metagenomics papers, what's your impression? How much are ASVs used use right now in the scenarios where people might use OTUs? Uh, they are used widely. Um, it's hard for me to compare, say, which one is used more or less, but ASVs have been rapidly adopted over the past few years and probably are used on par with OTUs on this point in time, at this point in time. Um, they've been adopted by the Chime 2 platform, which is the successor to Chime as the recommended uh, processing option for Amplicon sequencing. Um, I, it's not clear to me whether you are supposed to create OTUs in Mother, but I believe that you actually can. Um, but it's not recommended in that software package at this time, at least. Uh-huh. So, so basically, everything we've been discussing so far is like old news for, for people in, in this domain, right? It's, uh, it's just for, for the outsiders. And now we know uh, what's uh, like a revolution has happened. <laughs> but uh, people in, in the field uh, like pretty much know and use this. Well, I, I don't think it's 100%. I think there's still an active debate. Um, but certainly, it's not like we're, we're not predicting a revolution anymore. There's been broad uptake of these ASV methods already. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and so another subject uh, that you recently published a paper on uh, or, or participated in um, is this uh, study of... Uh, of bias when sequencing communities. So can you briefly talk about what you did there? Sure. So so this issue of developing an algorithm to separate errors from real sequences and amplicon sequencing, that, that was easy compared to the problem of bias, I think. <laughs> and so bias is a problem of metagenomics broadly. So I'm talking about metagenomics, like true sensu stricto, so shock metagenomics and also marker gene sequencing, both of them are biased. And what I mean by biased is that the relative abundances that are measured by these methods are not the true relative abundances. And in particular, they are systematically skewed from the true relative abundances because some bacterial taxa are easier to measure by these methods than others. And sort of the canonical example of this is if I have two bacteria in my community, they're at 50-50 in the community, but one of them is very easy to break open to lies and release the DNA, and the other isn't, I will get more of that easy to lies bacteria in my measurement than I had in the actual sample. And that, that's what bias is. And, and so bias doesn't just come from DNA extraction, it comes from pretty much almost all steps in the metagenomics uh, measurement workflow. Um, but but a couple steps are the most important, with DNA extraction maybe being the most importantly biased step. Right, and so in in that paper you proposed the mathematical or statistical model for the bias, right? What's the what are the main components of that model? Right, and and so what has been lacking so far? So there's this cottage literature out there already. You know, I think we have over 150 studies in our. Um, in our library, and there's probably more than that, that have reported bias in metagenomics measurements. But there isn't a model of bias that tells us 
how does bias change the true relative abundances to the measured relative abundances? And so the goal of this paper that we just published in eLife was to uh, formalize a mathematical model for that transformation from the true relative abundances to the measured and to validate that mathematical model in uh, synthetic communities where we know what the true composition is. And the idea behind our model is very simple. Um, you know, I, I like to do math that's really simple that I can understand. And so the idea is that there is some multiplicative factor. So, so for each taxa in my community, let's say I have three taxa, then I have three multiplicative factors. And I take the true relative abundances of each of those three taxa, and I multiply them by that, multiplicative, this, that taxa-specific multiplicative factor, and then normalize. And at the end, those are my measured relative abundances. And so those multiplicative factors, they capture the, you know, the, the, to the total process. But if we just think about DNA extraction, that multiplicative factor would be for every cell of this bacteria, I got 10 nanograms of DNA. Where after, uh, we're asked for um, bacteria 2, for every cell of bacteria 2, I got 2 nanograms of DNA. And for every cell of bacteria 3, I got 1 nanogram of DNA. And so then my multiplicative factors there are 10, 2, and 1. And so presumably those factors, as well as on the bacteria themselves, they also depend on the protocol that you're using. But if you fix the species and you fix the protocol, is there a hope that those factors will be consistent? Like if a if a person in a at a different lab performs the same protocol on the same uh, composition, will they get the same factors? Can they be sort of universally estimated and and uh, made public? So in theory, you're exactly right. So these factors depend on the interaction between the protocol and the bacterial taxa. And in theory, that means if lab B uses the exact same protocol as lab A on the same sample, they should get the same measurement. Um, and there's some degree that that'll be true. But one of the research questions that we're going we're gonna to be looking into is to how true that is in reality because of the difficulties in actually standardizing protocols. And this is one of the things that's been interesting to learn a little bit about like clinical microbiological laboratories or laboratories that have to work within sort of accredited environments, the process they have to build to make a reproducible measurement workflow is important and involved. And for those of us in, scientific, in the scientific world, um, we are completely loosey-goosey about that. Like, yeah, we might have something, we might have an SOP written down in a kit, and then we have a, a technician or a student run something, but we do not have a process in place to try and ensure that there's appropriate training, that there's appropriate evaluation and validation at every step, there's appropriate monitoring of that process. And so in practice, in the scientific world, I, I, I worry that your that uh, your hopeful assertion that they will get the same um, measurements won't bear out in practice. One important takeaway or conclusion from your model is that um, the bias you actually observe in your data, uh, if, if you're able to observe it, uh, what you'll observe 
also will depend on the composition of your sample. Uh, can you explain how and why that happens, maybe illustrate it somehow? So the this is maybe the most um, non-intuitive part of the paper. And so the bias will will and won't depend on the composition of the sample. So it will depend on the composition of the sample if you are looking at taxon proportions. So basically the, the standard thing that people look at, The standard at, right? thing when... that people do, yeah. So the standard thing that people do, bias will change depending on the composition of the sample. However, if you look at ratios between taxa, bias will be consistent between samples of different compositions. And so the reason for that is that when we create proportions, we are linking, the, the proportion of taxon A is linked to the proportions of all the other taxa on the sample. Because we take the relative abundance of taxon A and we divide it by the sum over the relative abundances of all the other taxa. So that's how we get a proportion. And so that links that uh, proportion to all the other taxa in the sample. And that leads to this issue that bias then becomes dependent on the sample composition. Bi the bias in proportions becomes dependent on the sample composition. But if I look at the bias of uh, taxon ratios, so I take taxon A and divide it by taxon B, that is independent of the rest of the sample. And bias acts consistently on those taxon ratios. And so that's actually arguably the most important finding of our study as well, is that you need to encounter, and, and this is referred to as compositionality, or these are compositional measurements, and that you have to account for this compositionality to be able to see that bias actually acts consistently. And that a lot of these previous analyses based on proportions were misled a little bit uh, by the compositional effects into thinking that bias was inconsistent. When it actually was acting in the same way on each sample, um, it just became mixed together by this uh, normalization to proportions at the end. We actually talked about, uh, about these things. Uh, so I think it was episode number five of this podcast with uh, Tom Quinn and uh, he studies the compositional data analysis. And another interesting connection is that I think you did this work together with Emmy Willis, who was also on the podcast. I think that was episode 17. So there, there are a lot of connections here. Yeah, the, the, well, the compositional data analysis people really like our, our bias work because <laughs> a property of, a canonical property of like true compositional data analysis is that it should be invariant to what they call a compositional perturbation, which is equivalent to the action of bias in our model. And so it becomes kind of a free win for compositional data analysis. Um, so in theory, and, and there's a long way to go to show that this plays out in real communities, but at least in some, you know, in, in the synthetic communities, a compositional data analysis will get the same results on your biased measurements as it does as it would if you actually had the true measurements of the relative abundances. Mm -hmm. And so how can you counteract this bias? So one way would be to to add some uh, mock species who, whose sort of concentration you, you know. And this is similar. So in, in general, I think the... Um, the metagenomic data analysis is very similar to RNA sequencing data analysis because in, in both cases you have these uh, things that you have to um, 
count and and calculate the, the proportions and the abundances. And so in RNA seq, I think sometimes they use like spike in RNA. And here, in theory, you could add some spike ins as well, right? Is that practical at all? So is that practical? Is a question I'm not prepared to answer. So spike ins at truly normalized concentrations. So you can really use them as you want to, to infer absolute abundances, uh, can be practical in some situations and not practical in others where it's difficult to sample in a very consistent way. Um, now are spike ins an answer to bias? Uh, no, they're actually not. And, And so the issue with bias is that it's different for each taxon in the community. And so while the spike in can help me get a better estimate of the total biomass in my sample, um, it won't tell me about how taxon A is differently biased from taxon B, which is a different type of information that I also need to get the true composition of the community. Right. So so that doesn't tell you the composition, the relative composition that gives you the absolute one, right? But I, I guess the relative is more interesting in, in this case. Well, you'd love to have both. Um the, the, the relative is harder because each taxon has its own bias parameter, whereas getting absolute abundance information is just one additional uh, parameter. Um, now, it can be a very useful parameter. So I mean, I'm, I'm very excited about the spike-in methods that are being developed. Um, but spike-ins are not an answer to the problem of these relative biases between different taxa. I see. A- any um, other or, or better solutions that uh, you look forward to or you anticipate yeah so so there, we sort of have a multi a multi-part plan to move forward on this and so the first path is can we develop analyses that are unaffected by bias and so i've sort of uh you know mentioned this already but in theory these compositional data analysis approaches will give you the same answer on your bias measurements as if you really knew the, the truth. The truth. Now, how, how true is that in reality? We don't know. Open research question. But that's something that we're certainly looking into. So a second related thing is how sensitive are our analytic findings to potential bias in our measurements? And so right now, we have no idea. We know we can show examples in which you can get completely qualitatively wrong answers due to bias. I can, I can find that this bacteria is in higher relative abundance in, in cancer than in non-cancer, when in fact it's in lower relative abundance, just, just due to bias. Um, but in sort of real situations, can we give people estimates of how sensitive, uh, how robust their results are, given the possible action of bias on their samples? Um, now, the other path is really th- the dream, and that would be to develop calibration for metagenomic sequencing. And there are all these other measurement technologies. So, so first of all, all measurements are wrong to some degree, right? And many measurements have will have systematic differences between the truth and the measurement. And so for many of these other measurement technologies, there is a calibration step. You might have a standard curve, or you might have some calibration control that you include when you're doing your measurements. And you can use the deviation between what you know is the truth for that uh, calibration sample and the measurement you got to correct your measurements on your real samples. So what if we could do that for metagenomic sequencing? And so where the idea here is that 
I could have a sample where I know the true composition and that contains the range of taxa that I care about in my real community. I'm going to include that in my experiments. So, you know, my 96 well plate, I'll have you know, maybe three wells dedicated to calibration controls. I'm going to use the systematic deviation that I see in my measurements of those calibration controls to then correct my measurements on the real samples to get true, or at least truer, measurements of their composition. So that would be amazing. Um, there are a lot of practical hurdles to making that happen in reality. And it's not even clear yet that it will be completely possible, but it's something that we're going to be working on. Cool, Ben. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Uh, is there anything else uh, you want to mention or talk about? Well, I, 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 just, I wanted to mention maybe, you know, uh, the other people that worked on this stuff with me a little bit. So the, the bias stuff, um, my postdoc here at NC State, uh, Michael McLaren, really led that work. Um, we also worked on it with, with Amy Willis, as he mentioned. Um, and, and he's going to be continuing to work on that and uh, developing that initial mathematical model into some more usable direction, guidance, and even tools for people uh, to use on their data. Um, and then on the you know exact sequences stuff and, and data too, you know I did a lot of that work when I was a postdoc in Susan Holmes' lab. And then I, I also worked on that with uh, sort of two important people. So Michael Rosen. Um, was part of the initial development of the initial data algorithm. And then uh, Joey McMurdy, who uh, was involved in some of the um, ideas and then also the software development uh, that made the Data2 software really happen. Awesome. Uh, ben, it was a big pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was nice to chat. Mm-hmm.